Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about minding your P's and Q's, part two. It's a feedback show. It's been almost a year since the first Minding Your P's and Q's show, which covered all the feedback that I had received up until then. At this point, I'm going to pick up just with the most recent few months, not necessarily going all the way back to a year ago. I have some that are as old as the very end of last year, but I want to begin with a very recent piece of feedback from Shane. He writes this. Hi, Greg. Just a quick email regarding the Republican politician Buddy Romer who plans to run for president in the next election. You've probably seen this already, but he was on The Daily Show recently, explaining how he wasn't invited to a recent Republican debate, as his views are seen as too moderate by the power base of the party. His views on how campaigns are funded were particularly interesting. Thought it's something you could definitely use in a future show. Yeah, I don't know whether I'm going to go into the direction of a full show on campaign finance reform. I certainly could. It's an area of passion for me, but I wonder if it's not just a little bit too close to what Dan Carlin does on the Common Sense show. And I'm not yet quite ready to look at the next election cycle. I feel like I'm not close enough to that particular 2012 campaign yet, and I don't like to jump the gun. But in the interest of talking a little bit about Buddy Romer, there's two concepts there that are kind of competing with each other. One is the notion that Romer is being kept out of some of the debates because he's viewed as too moderate. And without any doubt, the debate process, both Republican and Democrat, has nothing to do with appealing to centrists. However, the justification used for leaving out potential candidates or even full-fledged candidates like Romer is they don't have enough of the vote. They don't have enough fundraising. They don't have enough power money behind them. They aren't viewed as being credible. Here's what Romer said during his appearance on a couple of programs on Comedy Central. Paraphrasing first, and then I'll get into a quote. Romer has prohibited his campaign from accepting any special interest money. In fact, uh, the former Democrat turned Republican has pledged that his campaign will only accept individual donations of $100 or less. Here's the quote. Electability should not be discussed in terms of who can raise the most money but rather who has the best ideas to raise America. We can reform American politics, and here is my pledge to help us start. I will accept only contributions up to $100 per individual contributor. No PAC or special interest money will be accepted. Only individual contributions with a name and an address, and all will be reported, although not required under the current law. Today I declare my independence from moneyed special interest. That was Romer when he was forming the exploratory committee for a run for the president in an announcement he made last March. Now, during the summertime, the Iowa straw poll was conducted by those who were, you know, participating in the Republican Party events in Iowa. And, you know, Stephen Colbert asked him, you know, why he wasn't on the ballot for the Iowa straw poll, because after all, Romer being, you know, exploring, seeking out his candidacy, somebody who has roots in agriculture and farming would be a natural for, you know, speaking face to face with as many Iowa voters as possible. Again, here's what Romer said in answer to the question, why aren't you on the ballot for the Iowa straw poll? Ah, it's $15,000. That's the price for having a booth to participate in the ballot. And I love Iowa. I'm a farmer. I'm a cotton farmer. It's the way I grew up. There are farmers there, and I love going to get the votes. But I do not have the PAC money required for that sort of investment. PAC stands for Political Action Committees. I refer to the letters PAC, and I have in a couple of shows past, as both Political Action Committee and also Politically Active Christian, because one of the things they have in common is money. Grassroots support driven by typically anonymous donors. And, you know, special interest money is perhaps the best way of explaining it to an international audience. So when you compare Romer, who was unable to get himself even on the ballot for that vote, with Michelle Bachman, who actually spent a lot of money that she raised 
to set up situations where people could only see special things or get special perks if they voted for her. So she paid a lot of money to bring Randy Travis, the country singer, in to sort of her tent, so to speak. But the only way you could get to see Randy Travis, get an autograph, speak with him, was if you voted for her to get that to happen. And I think there was an intimation coming from some of the camps, some of the other Republican camps, that this was tantamount to buying votes. But truthfully, once you get past a couple candidates, Romer being one of them, this is business as usual. It's not that unusual, in other words. So what does Buddy Romer's campaign stand for? i give you a hint of it, in a sense, for why I'm still on the fence. Because at some point, as a Republican, I'm going to have an opportunity to cast a vote that I hope will bring moderation or at least bolster the independent voice within that party. I have been, at times in my political life, a Democrat and a Republican. This is not flip-flopping. This is just truthfully the life of a political moderate. If you don't have a voice because you don't fit squarely into either one of those two political parties, sometimes it makes sense to not be in the party of the person who's in office because the odds are there's going to be a run for a second term. And usually when that happens... The party that's in office doesn't have a primary candidate run against their own sitting president. So I'm looking to remain Republican and cast a moderating vote in that primary. And Romer is certainly a candidate for it. His uh, point of view about election reform and special interests is promising. He stands for a balanced budget. So do I. I've got different ideas on how to get there, though. He stands for creating jobs, and a lot of his words there make sense to me reinvesting in the American workforce, rediscovering what made in America really means, and trying to address our unemployment problem by addressing jobs as an initiative. I'm in favor of that. Reforming taxes. Depends on how you go about it. I'm in favor of that. But then when he gets into things like securing our national defense, I'm not sure that he's looked at the numbers in the same economic way that I have in terms of understanding where our investments lie. In repealing Obamacare, uh, this is all from the BuddyRomer.com website, he talks a little bit about the need of having a better answer. But I'm not persuaded that anybody who uses the term Obamacare, particularly as a pejorative, is as interested in putting a better solution in place as they are in going back to where we used to be. So no, just because I view Buddy Romer as as a moderate doesn't mean he has my vote. Just because he's opposed to the way special interest money influences elections doesn't necessarily mean he has my vote either. It does distinguish him from a lot of the other Republicans, and perhaps that does have something to do with why he's not invited to be on stage in a lot of these debates. Again, when your litmus test is how much special interest money have you raised, you've already got a wrong standard. And yet I sympathize that the media doesn't want to be trying to manage a televised public spectacle of a debate with 20, 30, 40 candidates up there. So how do you how do you divide it all up? Well, if you start with campaign reform, if you start with eliminating the influence of PAC money instead of requiring the influence of PAC money, you might come up with a much better litmus test for deciding who is on the stage in any given event. On the uh, difficult listening music episode number 65, I got this feedback from Jay, which was uh, posted to the website at http colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com. Jay reminded me of something that I think I'd heard from him before. They tried this format of, of letting sort of all genre in, letting the music be less like a DJ run show and more like an iPod shuffle. Um, they tried the format. It was supposed to be like an iPod on shuffle and it was called in most places Jack. The premise was that it was Jack's iPod on shuffle with no DJs and a random assortment of music, one after the other. It failed miserably, and most of the Jack stations were gone in about a year. From what I know, a couple of them are miraculously still holding on. But generally speaking, Jay's observation was that the model that I proposed just simply didn't work. And I think I've seen this myself. There's a couple of stations, if you're looking up, either on cable or on satellite TV, and you're playing around in the music section, you know, most of the names of those music stations, for want of a better word, have a real clear 
title to them. You know, some of them are even as direct as it's adult alternative or it's traditional jazz or whatever. That's the name of the station. But there were some with names, you know, Sophie and Jack and Tom, stuff like that. The only thing that I wonder is this is not the kind of thing that you can almost do. To make it work, you have to go all in. It has to be shocking in some ways, not necessarily shocking in a titillating FCC challenge sort of a way. Of course, with satellite radio, there really isn't an issue there. But you have to go full in with the variety. It can't just be a mixture of a little bit of top 40, a little bit of album-oriented rock, a little bit of classic rock, maybe a Christian song every now and then. You really have to include the classical. You've got to include the opera. You've got to jump over to spoken word. You've got to play bizarre instrumental Japanese noise rock. It's got to be everything to work. Although the truth is, I think the ship has sailed. I think it was too late, even at the time that the jack stations were proposed and were, were on trial for that first year. And to me, the magic moment happened with something I'm trying to remember the name of it exactly. It's been too many years ago, but something online called, I think, imagineradio.com. Now, if I'm getting this wrong and besmirching anybody, I apologize. It's not my intent, but I'm trying to remember that there was a moment with an online, quote unquote, radio alternative that I really, really liked. And I'm talking about it in past tense because the one I'm referring to did not survive. In this one, you literally had a menu of artists where you were allowed to pick any artist you wanted to. You had to pick some minimum number, at least 30, 40, 50, I suppose. But once you picked that number, you then had an option beyond that to go in and rate them, whether they were heavy or medium or light rotation. And you had a choice as to whether to allow this website to do what Pandora kind of does today in terms of now that it understands a little bit about your taste, letting it bring in and introduce you to new artists that it thinks would fit in with you know, the genre you've established. And I think maybe the expectation was that if somebody came in and put in almost all country artists with a little bit of classic rock, that the radio station, the online radio station, would automatically know for every new artist whether it was for you or not. Somebody who is a George Strait sound-alike, by all means, give it to this individual. But the next Metallica imitator... This person doesn't need to hear any of that. So new music could get introduced, and that's something that you know, obviously would make the record labels happy. And at the same time, the listener would have some control over what they're hearing. They wouldn't be forced to deal with you know, the, the latest thing if the latest thing clearly wasn't for them. And to me, I was very excited about this, not because I thought it would be perfect, not because I thought I could put in my 50 to 60 favorite artists and it would then know exactly what I wanted for every time a new release came out, but because it gave me the opportunity to put in that big range of music that I enjoy. So I could put in, you know, jazz performers and I could put in classical, but I could also put in, you know, the kind of rock and roll that was playing on the radio when I grew up, along with some modern rock. Now I could have that, that mixture in place. If I threw in some country and bluegrass, the one thing I could know for sure is that I was going to hear Alison Krauss because I asked for her. Now, the problem I had with Imagine Radio's concept was I wasn't sure, and I never got a full chance to evaluate how well it was going to be able to pick similar artists for me. In this respect, I think the current model that um, Pandora, for example, you know, demonstrates is probably better, that the technology is better, the logic is better, the commitment perhaps by the company is better, and that it probably works as well as you could want. The problem is I don't want radio. I don't want somebody grabbing some you know, random artist that thinks I'm going to like and making that the centerpiece of what I'm listening to. And what I wanted to have online, playing in the background, accompanying me as I worked on something or surfed the web, was something that I knew what that core group of 100 to 150 artists was going to be. Now, that's really the difference. Because I was picking more than 30 or 40, more than 100 artists, in fact, I was probably what the record labels would have considered to be a safe bet because I wasn't going to be trying to find a way to record whatever played online, which, you know, again, not a particularly high quality sound reproduction anyway, at least not back then, but the record labels freaked out. And I think a lot of the reason that, that imagine radio's model failed is because the record labels themselves stepped in and said, no, we think this is an invitation to piracy and we're going to stop it. 
it's unacceptable for you to be able to say that you want to hear Garth Brooks and George Strait and Rascal Flatts and Kenny Chesney, because then you might just record those artists and then not buy the CDs instead. But for me, that was never the idea anyway. For me, I already owned a lot of the CDs. I just wasn't at the point of having iTunes. And this iTunes may have existed back then, but this was pre-iTunes for me. So because Imagine Radio got shut down, or essentially was squeezed out, and they had to change their business model in a way that it wasn't me actually saying, these are the artists I like, play them, and play others like them. When MP3 players came along, and with uh, things like Zune and things like you know iTunes, you know, it was natural that that was going to migrate and squeeze all this other stuff out. So for an internet radio concept to succeed today, whether it be named Jack or Tom or Sophie or Greg, doesn't matter. Because now, in this MP3 player, iPod, iTunes era, I don't need a jack station on some satellite radio to give me this blend that I want. Because i got my own blend. And it's, be cre- it's been created because these online radio station concepts, a way of getting your own personalized radio station through the computer, has essentially been completely replaced by iTunes. But there was a moment in time, and that moment in time came and went, where Imagine Radio had an opportunity to be a difference maker. And the reason it didn't happen was that the record labels were more afraid of piracy than they were about customer focus. Hello, Dave Prouse here. And when I'm not performing my one-man show, The True Voice of the Dark Side, I listen to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Syndicated Network. Right, back to rehearsals. Commander, tear this ship apart until you find those plans and bring me all passengers. I want them alive! I want to go as far back as late December, early January, and share a comment by someone named The Saint. And part of the reason I want to share the comment is that it has a lot to do with Tony Pucci and a project I'm supporting called Songs for Jenny. If you haven't heard what I believe is uh, number 41, Gone But Not Forgotten uh, and Yet Left Behind, the different drummer there is Tony Pucci, and a lot of it has to do with Tony Pucci's project, Songs for Jenny, which is about his sister. And um, obviously the body of that particular show is about my own sister. And something Tony and I have in common is that somebody that was close to us in age that we cared deeply about uh, was taken from us at a very young age, from a very cruel disease. Different disease, but similar experience. Here's the comment from The Saint. Awesome podcast, if you can even call it that. I just found this podcast from the Simply Syndicated front page. I thought it would be just another silly podcast. I didn't expect it to get as deep and meaningful as it was. This cast is, as you said, a poem on the wall. I'm glad I just happened to be looking. I really appreciated that comment, to be honest with you, because you could easily say two things. First off, yeah, Inappropriate Conversations is almost not a podcast. It's almost an audio blog of sorts instead. And the other thing is that because that episode was, for me, a very personal episode, not dealing really with politics or sex or religion or not even really pop culture all that directly, it was nice that kind of leaving the road a little ways, uh, setting the cause aside perhaps for a show did not fail to register. You know, that if some people got something out of it, out of it, that's really a good thing for me. One of the listeners that I've been interacting with either via posts on each other's blogs or things of that nature is someone named Janet. And, um, Janet, and I actually have been uh, interacting a little bit all along, or at least it seems like all along, which is a good thing. But I want to share just a couple of comments recently from her. One from the episodes uh, dealing with childhood, uh, the one about you know reaching kids with you know, marbles and vinegar and Johnny Quest and stuff like that. And uh, her comment back to me, uh, an email actually, was blogs and mar- marbles and bugs. Oh my. <laughs> Hi, Greg. I just listened to your newest show, and I'm surprised to hear you mention my blog. Yes, Janet has the blog 321 that I mentioned in that podcast. I didn't even know you had read it, much less think it worthy of a mention on your show. That's awesome that you sort of know my family now. I love internet friends, and I agree with her. I enjoyed the show a lot. I also had a marble game when I was little. It was one of my favorite things to play with. 
Mine had plastic tubes and tracks that could be linked together like a vertical maze for marbles to travel through. And my mom also had an old jar of marbles like the ones you played with, only I wasn't allowed to play with them often. Now I'm worried that I will walk into the kitchen and find my boys performing an experiment on some poor bug someday. Ah, the joys of being a mother to boys. I'm counting on them when they get older to get rid of the bugs that come into the house, not to bring them in. Yeah, to me, that really resonated because with my kids, we had another one of those sort of contraptions, like a hamster wheel sort of. It almost reminded me of the kind of Acme contraptions that Wild E. Coyote would buy to try to, you know, in this case, drop a marble on top of the Roadrunner. And you could make them as simple as you wanted, where marbles were simply spiraling down, or you could make them as complex as could be and even learn some physics lessons along the way about how to deal with things like slope to make sure that the marbles would actually flow all the way down. In fact, I remember when I was really little, I don't know why I didn't think of this a few weeks ago recording the show. When I was little, I, we got a clock that was the entire principle of the clock was based on moving steel marbles up and down this track. And uh, as an hour would go by, or even as a minute would go by, a marble would move down the track in a certain way that when enough um, minutes were accumulated, the the system would adjust and you know gravity would take over and drop a marble down and you could always tell the hour and the minute by where the marbles were maybe it was uh, five minute intervals or something like that but you know I'm always been a very deep sleeper and I imagine that there's some people who would not be able to sleep deeply in a room where every five minutes or so a marble was rolling down some sort of plastic track I don't think I have this clock anymore of course at some point mechanical parts like that aren't going to work and as cool as it was in my opinion. Uh, it doesn't do much good if it doesn't keep accurate time. But what an interesting idea. I did respond to Janet and tell her that yeah, I had the same kind of the same kind of product she was talking about. At least for my kids, we called it discovery toys. And again, very much like a hamster track for marbles. It does get worse than bugs though. Um, my, my brother was maybe four plus years older than I am, four and a half years older. And when he was in high school, I can remember him and some friends. Uh, somehow they ended up catching a very large goldfish or maybe a very large goldfish died and, and rolled up to the shore of a pond that, that we were playing at at the time. And my brother yeah, picked that up, got it on ice, took it home, and luckily not in the kitchen, in this case it was in the garage, uh, dissected the fish to try to learn you know, a little bit more about its anatomy and maybe how air bladders worked and kind of the, the lay of the land. And usually when you got a fish, you got a fish to clean it and eat it. Now I don't. I'm not a big fan a fish and we certainly weren't going to try to eat a, a giant goldfish but yeah i remember that was being a too big of an operation too complex of an operation for me to be involved in it was my older brother his friend maybe my older sister so actually bugs aren't the worst thing that could get operated on from a group of kids uh, boys in particular and part of the reason that i mentioned janet's blog in that show was simply to highlight you know kind of the the interesting thing that happens when you've got you know a parent of one gender and all the kids are of the other gender. In this case, a mom with all boys in the house. I think you also have a, an interesting dynamic for the dad. If all the if all the kids in the family are girls, you have a dad with all girls in the house. You know, the parent of the opposite gender usually has a different dynamic. You know, and maybe an, even an interesting challenge to deal with in that regard. And Janet's blog captures that with a lot of charm. I recommend it highly. It's uh, 3 to one um, Three, uh, the letters T-O and one, like a ratio. It's always something of a challenge to come up with a different drummer for a points and questions show. Last time I did this, I had a different drummer that I'd bumped from another program and just sought the opportunity to plug him right back in. In this case, though, I have a different drummer that when I look at all the future topics that I have in mind, nothing really fits her all that well. She doesn't necessarily have that strong of a political point of view. If I was going to talk about questions of medical ethics and dealings with you know, a serious disease, I might go with Michael J. Fox instead. So I think that I feel pretty safe talking now about Terry Garr knowing that later I'm not going to be worried about having spoken of her too soon and missing an opportunity to connect her with a different upcoming topic. I encountered her as an actress as a very young age, was always taken by her humor 
and her skill as a performer, she didn't seem to take anything for granted. And this year, for the first time, I read, actually, honestly, listened to her autobiography, published just a few years ago, called Speed Bumps, written with Henriette Mantel. But the thing I like the best about the uh, audiobook is that this audiobook is actually read by Terry Garr. Now, sometimes with audiobooks, the best approach is to get something that is read by a professional reader, that you want an author who is uniquely skilled at writing and creating if it's fiction, or sharing and researching if it's nonfiction. And that individual may not be the best person to be a reader for an audiobook. But in this case, with autobiography in particular, and with the person who has written the book being by nature a performer, I thought it really worked. And in fact, as I was listening, I quickly realized that I couldn't imagine this book being read by anyone else, regardless of their skill, because the storytelling style, despite the fact she had you know, help with the writing process, the storytelling style is unmistakably Terry Garr. So what do I like about Terry Garr? Well, first off, it never really occurred to me that Terry Garr first started in the business as a dancer. That was not something I was looking for. So if it was visible, I never really noticed. Terry Garr was born in the uh, Lakewood, Ohio, Cleveland area in 1944, and both of her parents were performers, uh, vaudeville comedian in the case of her father, and her mother, in addition to working in vaudeville with her father, was a dancer, a rockette, a wardrobe mistress, and a model. So you, know, you might say that performing was somewhat in her blood. Uh, they moved around quite a bit when she was young, and along the way, she decided that Maybe the one thing she wanted to really do more than anything else was, was to be an actor. So she took ballet lessons and other dance lessons, and that was kind of her entree into screen roles. As I read through her filmography, I think you'll see what I mean. Her earliest roles were in Elvis films, you know, originally cast as a dancer. She appeared in the movie Head in 1968, which was a, uh, essentially a monkey's film. But beyond any doubt, the first time I saw her was in the Star Trek episode, Assignment Earth, as Roberta. In this TV episode, she was supposed to be a key character in what was planned to be spun off as a new series. In fact, Assignment Earth was one of those rare moments where a long-standing established show like Star Trek, this is well into its run, was actually being used to introduce a new character and a new set of plot lines that was supposed to carry on as its own show. It ended up being just the pilot. But that was the first time I saw Terry Garr, and it really was really, a lot of ways, one of her first significant speaking roles. Her first major motion picture, a big-time motion picture, you might say, was 1974, and The Conversation, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Wouldn't be her last work with Coppola, but this was the uh, one of the breakthrough films for him, and the first time that you, know, you would have noticed her if you had missed um, Star Trek, if you weren't looking on the little screen. I'm going to skip the other film that she made in 1974 and go to a TV movie called Law and Order. Now, this is not anything related to the long-running TV franchise we've seen for the last two-plus decades in America. This was more of a, um, a biographical police crime family show. It's described on allmovie.com this way. Former policewoman Dorothy Unak wrote the book upon which this 150-minute TV movie was based. The central characters of Law & Order are the male members of an Irish-American family, three generations of police officers. The bulk of the drama concerns the conflicts between Deputy Police Chief of Public Affairs Brian O'Malley, played by Darren McGavin, and his Vietnam vet's son, played by Art Hendel. He's become a beat cop, in addition to their problems at home. Chief O'Malley must contend with rumors of department corruption and other things in this police story style series. Now, Law & Order, at two and a half hours of straight running time, would have broadcast on TV at at least three hours. If the film was shown with you know, an aggressive amount of commercial advertising, you could be talking about a three and a half or four hour block of time. This is one of the reasons that I think that this particular made-for-TV movie is not rebroadcast very often. I remember catching it like in a Sunday afternoon where one of the networks was simply looking to fill a big three or four hour block of time. But truthfully, 
it's one of the ones that Terry Garr had appeared in, one of the movies that I'd love to see again. She doesn't mention it at all in her book, and I'm not sure how big her role is. When I saw it, I was quite young. Other notable film credits include the short film, The Absent-Minded Waiter, starring Steve Martin, in which she appears. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Oh God, which she's the wife of the central John Denver character, The Black Stallion, and a... uh, guest host appearance in 1980 on Saturday Night Live, kind of rounding out that decade for her. In the 80s, her career had significant ups, and perhaps downs, but significant ups, starring Roland One from the Heart, a film that was not all that helpful to Francis Ford Coppola's career, but one that is noteworthy and historically significant from a film perspective. Her role in Tootsie got her a nomination for Best Supporting Actress, The award also went to an actress in Tootsie, to Jessica Lange, and it gives you a sense of just how strong the supporting roles were in that film. Bill Murray, also one of the sort of cameo, sort of guest stars in the movie, so it wasn't just Dustin Hoffman. She also appeared in Mr. Mom, The Sting 2, After Hours, absolutely one of my favorite Martin Scorsese films. And from listening to Terry Garr's autobiography, it occurred to me that After Hours, which I've always thought of as being a great, quirky, unheralded, un- underregarded Martin Scorsese movie, actually owes a lot of its existence to the actor Griffin Dunn, who plays the lead role. Scorsese was looking for an opportunity during the time that he was, you know, on downtime, really, between the making of The Last Temptation of Christ, where he was having funding issues and location issues, and he picked this film up sort of, again, sort of as an opportunity, uh, something to spend some time on. Now, there's no doubt, if you've seen the movie After Hours, that the artistic handiwork of Martin Scorsese is present there. The editing is quite good, using his normal editor, Thomas Schumacher. Cinematography has some wonderful creative moments from Michael Ballhouse, but really, it's the uh, Joseph Minion screenplay. And actor Griffin Dunn's support for that screenplay that got the film made at all. And uh, Griffin Dunn made a point, at least did everything in his power, to get the film made with his friend, Terry Garr, in the cast. If you haven't seen the movie After Hours, it's an absolute must, if only because the incredible cast, the incredible quirkiness of the cast, and the fact that you've got you know Scorsese directing truly someone else's material, it works in a brilliant way. As we move closer to the present, the only other major role that I'll mention from Terry Garr, who is a a huge list of film credits, especially when you consider that it's a huge list of film credits for somebody who perhaps didn't regard herself first and foremost as an actress. She perhaps regarded herself first and foremost as a dancer, at least for years and years. But to me, the uh, two-parter, end of one season, beginning of the next season episode of Friends, where she appears in in a role as Phoebe's mom or a friend of Phoebe's mom, uh, really a wonderful star turn and something that I think um, gave a lot of, you know, to me gave a lot of weight, gave my generation something for that Friends series that it needed. It was the female equivalent for me of Tom Selleck's appearance, even though Tom Selleck appeared in many more episodes and had a perhaps a longer recurring arc. Just going through her filmography, I've left out something big. I've left out my wife's favorite film of all time and my favorite Terry Gar appearance. What knockers? Oh, thank you, Doctor. The story she tells about the audition process and getting the role of Inga in Young Frankenstein is, in and of itself, worth the cost of her book, worth the time spent with the audiobook. Uh, she literally talks about reading the script, realizing that the script was calling for somebody who was quite bosomly, and therefore her best shot of getting the role, of at least securing the role that she had a, sh- a good chance of getting, was to make sure that she came in with emphasis in that direction. So she said that she went to her audition with a padded bra stuffed with socks, and after getting the part, concluded that perhaps, just perhaps, she should have been wearing socks in her bra for every audition that she'd ever done before. This is the humor, sometimes self-deprecating, sometimes introspective, but also honest enough to call out the foibles of her parents, of her siblings, of herself in her life path that I think makes her a very charming performer. 
there is something, especially about comic actors, that really works if they don't take themselves too seriously. Terry Gar has a lot of reasons to take things very seriously. For many years, more years than even she knew, she was um, dealing with the disease multiple sclerosis. She could not get a solid MS diagnosis for, again, literally decades. But after years of uncertainty and not really wanting to declare that she thought she might have this disease, the last thing you want to do is own a disease that some people consider to be immediately debilitating without really understanding how it impacts you and, and the come and go nature of it. She instead spent years you know, denying and waiting for a good solid diagnosis. But when she came out, for want of a better word, about it, once she realized that this diagnosis was real, here's what she said. And I think it tells a lot about the character of Gar and the fact that in her autobiography, she shares how much she wrestled with the decision. That this was not some act of saintliness. This wasn't some, you know, a daring piece of courage on her part. Quoting Gar, I'm telling my story for the first time so I can help people. I can help people know they're not alone and tell them there are reasons to be optimistic. This is Terry Gar speaking um, publicly about dealing with MS. Among the things that she did was to become a national ambassador for the National Multiple Sclerosis Society and to do speaking engagements on behalf of the companies that were researching a cure. Now, to be a little bit cynical, some of these were drug companies, right? Drug companies are going to be the ones that are doing the research and development necessary to find a cure for something like MS. But she expresses uh, in interviews and in her book what a surprise it was to be speaking to people and to really make that sort of personal connection for an audience in a way that she never had before. She doesn't word it this way, but I, I've had conversations online with friends about the difference between being a creative artist and being a preacher. It's one thing to have a script, learn the part, and go and deliver the material. It's also perhaps a somewhat similar thing to write your own material, to be a stand-up comedian or to be a performance artist and learn the material and go out playing the part of yourself on stage. There's still a bit of distance there from the audience because you and the audience are in on the fact that what you're doing is just an act. When Garb got before people who had come to hear her speak because they had MS or a loved one had MS, that's a different kind of thing altogether. That's much closer, perhaps, to what a minister or a pastor or a preacher or a priest experiences when delivering a message in a spiritual way to a congregation and having the congregation greet you afterward and share their thoughts or raise their questions or or what have you. It's not the same thing that we you know, have seen terrible examples of really, I would describe them as perverse Christianity from televangelists. And almost any time you see something on TV that's part of a regular show, things like the Trinity Broadcasting Network or the Christian Broadcasting Network, you almost have to say, listen, this is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an actual pastor-congregation relationship. And that's the kind of thing that I think Terry Gar had to deal with, that she was speaking from the heart about something she'd experienced with a group of people who shared that common experience. And when she was done talking, the curtain didn't come down as if to stipulate that the play was over. The play, in this sense, the story, is still going on. I'm happy to say at the time of this recording, that's a true statement, that Terry Gar, while dealing with MS, and at a point in her life where it's uh, a bit of a challenge, we're seeing more voice acting credits than you know screen appearances and TV show appearances from her. But so far, it's encouraging for me that she's still fighting that good fight. I want to share a quick word of scripture. It's just a single verse. And when I'm done, I'm going to explain why. So if you hang with me for a second, I'm going to go to the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, chapter 3, verse 19, and quoting from the New International Version. Then what was the purpose of the law? It was added because of human sin, and it was supposed to control us until the promised seed had come. The law was put into effect 
through angels by a go-between. This is Paul, speaking of Jesus Christ as Abraham's seed, the promised Messiah. And he's saying in no uncertain terms to the church in Galatia, words that he'd also shared in Romans chapter 13 with the church in Rome, those words coming later. Chronologically, he's sharing here earlier on that the law's purpose was to exist to tell us what sin was, to make us aware of how far we fall short of the perfection that God represents. But we were supposed to be aware of this until when? Until Jesus came. And at that point, the law is no longer relevant. In fact, let me cheat a little bit and share some comparable passages from Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. Here are some commandments to think about. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Do not want what belongs to others. These and other commandments are all included in one rule. And here is what it is. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love does not harm its neighbor. So love does everything the law requires. Paul is making it clear in these passages, the same thing that Jesus made clear in all of the synoptic gospels. The law is fulfilled when you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Why is this important? This is important because, you know, during the latter part of the summer, I made a recording with a simply syndicated podcast called Do Ask, Do Tell. Do Ask, Do Tell is a podcast that focuses on dealing with issues important to the gay, lesbian, bi, transgendered, and queer communities. And they hit four or five episodes to get to the fifth episode after being you know, somewhat in stride, in my opinion, ready to do a show about religion. And a little bit to my surprise, to be honest, they called and invited me on. Now, I say a little bit to my surprise. I've podcasted before. I have a microphone. I mean, I know personally some of the people on Simply Syndicated. So in that respect, probably not a shock. But for this particular show, I wasn't going to be able to bring a full range of commentary. As I've shared on inappropriate conversations before, I'm straight. I've been married for 24 years. I don't have any sort of stories in my own personal past that would be relevant to the LGBTQ sort of, you know, conversation, right? But I do understand religion, and I do have a faith that's very biblically based. And during the process of recording that show, it occurred to me that perhaps my faith is a touch more biblically based than a lot of the people that gay and lesbian folks encounter, because most of the conversations they have are not very Jesus-centered, focused perhaps more on the Old Testament than the New, and even when they're focused on the New Testament, they pit not just Paul against Jesus, but Paul against himself. Because even though Paul does have passages in Romans and Corinthians where he speaks about a whole list of things that people should not do because they're wrong, and he includes um, homosexual prostitution and homosexuality in that list, this is the same Paul who told us that the fulfillment of all the laws to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So I recorded, long story short, a religion episode on www.simplysyndicated.com for a show called Do Ask, Do Tell. And it's their fifth show that they've released, simply called Religion. I bring that up now because in addition to Janet giving me feedback about child rearing and marbles and bugs, she also sent me feedback about the religion episode recorded over on Simply Syndicated. And she spoke to all three hosts. I want to read the letter in its entirety, just in case... It doesn't get read entirely on the other two shows. I don't know how they're going to handle this particular feedback. She literally wrote one email and sent it to all three of us. So the three men who appeared on the show get some direct address, and um, I'll just read it. And I think the flow kind of makes sense. Here's Janet's words. I've just listened to the Do Ask, Do Tell latest episode with Greg, Boz, and Ian. It may have been one of the most interesting shows I've heard. The three of you made a great combination I'm a fan of all three shows, and it was cool to hear you all together. Ian, I've listened to Do Ask, Do Tell from the start and enjoyed each one. I applaud you for trying to enlighten people. It is indeed a worthy cause, and you do it so politely, too. Boz, you are such a sweet person, and most times when I hear you on a show, I just want to give you a hug. 
You make me laugh constantly, and I always enjoy your stories. You are especially brave to reveal your past, and I agree with Ian that it will help someone else to have heard it. We all have secrets and dark places we would rather not discuss, and I can promise you that you are in good company. The sorting hat would put you in Gryffindor for certain. Greg, what can I say? I've had more personal interaction with you than the others through emails. I always appreciate your view. You have found the perfect balance of speaking up for what you believe without being too pushy. I was hoping to hear you discuss raising your kids in a Christian home, since it was mentioned that children are often brainwashed or otherwise brought up with beliefs that they must later reassess as adults. I would be interested to hear your opinion on how to raise open-minded children, since I hope to do the same. Being raised in the South and in an Assembly of God church, think speaking in tongues and holy rollers, I have seen my share of beliefs I had to reassess for myself when I was older. I think it's fair to say that as more freedoms become common, new generations become more open-minded than the previous. As an example, both of my parents grew up in the segregated South in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and both of them had a difficult time overcoming the stereotypes they grew up believing. To this day, my grandmother still refers to African Americans as Negroes, and some members of my family were horrified when I selected a black doctor to deliver my babies. But I don't know anyone my age or younger that is a racist. I'm sure they're out there, but I don't know them. So my question to you is this. What future prejudices do you think we may have to deal with as we get older? And do you think that being open-minded about things like religion, race, sexuality, etc. will help us deal with new issues as they arise? I'm sure not many Americans have given a thought to how they would treat a Muslim if they had met one before 9-11, or especially 50 years ago. So what have we not thought of yet that could potentially be difficult for us to accept? What about incest between consenting adults, or the lady that claimed she married the Eiffel Tower? Love to all, Janet. Hey everyone, it's Ian, or Kano1988 from the forums. Uh, you might have already heard, but I'm uh, doing a sponsored skydive for Macmillan Cancer Support. So if any of you can help in any way, uh, donating even as little as a quid, that would be brilliant. Uh, if you can go to www.justgiving.com slash ian-pope. Uh, there are also links through Simply Read, uh, so if you can uh, get on there, that would be wonderful. Thanks very much, guys. I think I'm going to cheat a little bit and not necessarily go into great detail on the questions that Janet answers because I skipped a show early on, somewhere in the late teens, early 20s. My plan was to talk a little bit about my past and um, child rearing itself and the methods of raising kids. And let me see if I can quickly kind of call up what those topics would have been. I conceived of it as a two-parter that we might see again next year, with one part being my notes just say, Mistakes or just growing up, you know, referring to things like alcohol and you know, even pornography. And the other one called prematurity, communicating with kids in an adult way. And to me, that's kind of part of it. Uh, to me, the technique for raising kids and the line between indoctrination and education is whether or not the approach that we use is, you know, fully developed. Do we have an adult perspective on what we're sharing with kids? Because one thing that happens when you have an adult perspective is that you've got a plan for where, where the lines are. At what point are you teaching kids what you know, and at what point are you overstepping that? And the other line is in terms of making sure that there's room for questions to be asked and answered. I definitely will get to this in the future, talking about my first uh, encounters with adultery. And when you think about how confusing it is for a kid, and you feel sorry for kids where they first encounter adultery, adultery in their own home with their own parents, but even if you're just an eyewitness to the impact of adultery on other people you know, other families, it's very confusing. And I was always blessed to be in churches where I was allowed to ask questions. There weren't any rules that said when I was growing up that you can't challenge these things. The fact that I spent time both in a Methodist church and a Catholic church, and that we visited other churches from time to time and interacted in interfaith, interdenominational ways in church camps and other ministries 
kind of gave me permission to raise questions. To me, it comes down to how faith is shared. If faith is presented as the only option, an either-or sort of a choice, or some information that's going to be pounded in your head and you're going to believe it whether you believe it or not, well then, yeah, that's the wrong way. It's not being communicated as what I what I consider it to be. I consider faith to be a form of knowledge. And it's a form of knowledge not in the sense that it can be memorized and learned or observed or calculated and measured. It's something where you have to know enough to recognize it when you see it. But it's a two-way street because it's an open form of communication with God. So to me, the four stages there of faith are loaned, borrowed, sought, and owned. So what a parent does when they bring a kid to church for infant baptism, for example, infant baptism, whether you believe in the practice or not, whether you're, you know, there's some denominations that think that no one should ever get baptized until they're old enough to voluntarily choose it. But the concept of infant baptism in my denomination is that you have a group of people, you know, mom and dad, other family members, sometimes a godfather, volunteering to say, we are going to do what we can to tell our child what we believe. That doesn't mean make our child believe something. It means tell our child what we believe. The difference between loaned faith and borrowed faith is that borrowed faith, you're now getting into that middle school sort of age and high school sort of age where the, the child is on their own, ideally voluntarily, very voluntarily, learning more. And in that process of what you know, my denomination calls confirmation class, they are choosing to formally learn, probably from a pastor or some other adult, not the parents, what the parents have been doing their best to model and explain as they went. Again, in the best set of circumstances, you do not have somebody pounding information into a kid's head and forcing them to regurgitate it. What you have is another adult. This one, perhaps very wise and experienced, perhaps even trained at the master's degree or doctoral level who can answer other questions and share a different perspective. It could be a different perspective that arrives at the same conclusion from a faith perspective or even from a denomination perspective, but it's still a different adult. None of that in my mind assumes that what happens in high school and college is a foregone conclusion. And again, the line between indoctrination and not indoctrination is, is this loaned faith and borrowed faith process, even through something that sounds so definitive as the word confirmation, does that assume that we're done? Mission accomplished. Well, you know, I think brainwashing might be an appropriate term for somebody who is that convinced that at that young of an age, the process of transferring faith from one generation to the next is complete. No, it's not. Without the next step, without the seeking itself, you're not going to really have genuine faith. What you may have is a, a mind or head knowledge of what faith's all about. Without the actual heart knowledge of interpersonal experience, and sought faith is exactly that. And sometimes in the process of seeking your own path, seeking your own faith, you have to turn around and reject that previous generation. That is certainly what I experienced in my lifetime dealing with questions of racism, and frankly, questions of classism. My family did a very good job of preparing me to turn to the rest of society with a different set of questions and a different answer. It is only through that sought faith process that you ever get to the point of owned faith, of truly having your own faith. How did I get to be the kind of believer that I am? I went through each and every one of those steps. I was baptized in the Catholic Church, confirmed in the United Methodist Church, where I voluntarily chose to experience baptism again at an age when I would remember it and understand the experience firsthand. That didn't stop me in college from spending a lot of time looking at a lot of things from a lot of different perspectives. Truthfully, it started in high school, and someday I will share those stories as well. But the end result of that is an own faith. It's not me regurgitating what somebody else told me, whether they told me when I was five years old, 15 years old, or 25 years old. I was not regurgitating somebody else's experience because I was given the freedom to create my own experiences, 
to explore and find my own answers. Now, does that freedom still work if no one ever shares their faith with anybody? No, I think that fails. I think that it is important that parents share their belief systems with their children, whether those belief systems are built on atheism, Christianity, or any other you know, religious or faith construct, it's important that that be passed down. Yeah, in some ways, one generation passing their racism down to the next generation is not the end of things. We talk about these, these sort of legacies of hate as being things that are inevitable and the, that you're locked into, but I don't think that you are, because every teenager goes through a process of open rebellion against those things that are hypocritical from the generation before. This leads us to Janet's other questions. What should we be thinking is going to come to us next? What future prejudices do you think we'll have to deal with as we get older? And do you think being open-minded about things like religion, race, and sexuality will help us deal with the new issues as they arise? Well, I think Janet cited a couple of very good ones. Christians have, in America anyway, have always perceived themselves as the dominant world theistic religion. How we interact with Muslims is going to say an awful lot about how genuine our faith is. If we fail this, it's because we've let fear replace faith. If we succeed in this, then I think we'll be providing an unbelievable model for the world on how to deal with people who believe differently. Because in many ways, Muslims believe slightly differently, whereas perhaps um, certain Eastern religions believe very differently. And yet I think like two siblings who are close to each other in age and close to each other in hobbies and interests, they fight more, don't they? than the kids who are very, very different from each other. And the fights can get ugly the closer the kids are. So you worry about how Americans are going to deal with Muslims in our midst, and you're already seeing mistakes being made. I'll save my commentary on Republican presidential candidates who believe that we're under threat of Muslims taking over America and trashing our Constitution. I'll save that for another day. But you can already see what failure looks like if you just kind of watch some of the rhetoric that's coming from the political right, they don't necessarily understand um, what it is that true faithfulness represents, the confidence in knowing the answer, for one thing. So uh, other things we may have to deal with, well, I think certainly that of all the, um, of all the terms that are used in Do Ask, Do Tell episodes, transgender is the one that I think probably is the least understood the least accepted, it has the most complexity to it. So there's a lot to be learned there in terms of how we deal with that. Our understanding of things like gender and sex and sexuality has not advanced much in the last two or 300 years. Our science has moved along, but even our science has made strides in my lifetime that fall directly in contradiction with things that we thought were true 150 and 200 years ago. So I think that um, if you look at some of the things that you know, I mentioned in episode 69 about America's historical understanding of the family and sexuality, uh, you can see that you know, there's, there's a lot of gaps we still have yet to cover. And it was really only maybe 40, 40 to 50 years ago that you began to see real questions being raised about the role of women in the workplace, men in homes, child rearing, other sort of things where we're redefining things in a way that I don't even think we've settled yet on those questions. So I think that there's a lot of gender politics where there's a lot of prejudice yet to be resolved on questions of gender. And when you start throwing in things uh, like, you know, the definition of consenting adult, I think it's really easy to look at, at age of consent and draw a line somewhere. But what do you do with two adults? Uh, the, the incest question that Janet raises, uh, I'm certain that, that that will be um, a very difficult thing for society to deal with if we end up down to a place where we have to set a standard in order to provide the right level of protection and freedom for, for gay people or for transgendered people. Um, that standard may expand some of the rules around consenting adults to a place that a lot of Americans would be uncomfortable with today. So I do think those are some of the issues. Just to to touch on it. And perhaps at some future time, I'll come back and visit that one. I know the question of, of child rearing and, and how to deal with children, especially bright, intelligent, challenging children 
when it comes to sharing your faith beliefs and sharing your family history, I definitely have that back on the calendar. I'm going to get to that sometime probably in the next calendar year. Thanks for listening.